Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In just one hour, votes will be cast in New Hampshire's first in the nation primary, and we will take you right there tonight on Laura Coates Live. At midnight tonight, Dixville notches six registered voters. Yes, I said six registered voters will kick off the crucial New Hampshire Republican primary. And by this time tomorrow, we should have a pretty good idea whether Nikki Haley can put the brakes on what so far seems like a Trump juggernaut heading straight for the Republican nomination. It's democracy in action. and You'll see it all live right here. But first, my exclusive interview with Vice President Kamala Harris. We talked about the reversal of Roe v. Wade and what that means for voters. Plus, Donald Trump's legal woes and her candid reaction to how people view her. It's a wide-ranging conversation, one you won't hear anywhere else but here. And it starts right now. I'm so glad that you're here. And of course, you have decided to kick off the campaign in many respects when, in, with respect to abortion. Yeah. We're wondering, though, what could you accomplish in a second term that you haven't already done now? Well, to get there, we're going to require everyone to vote to understand what's at stake right now. And, um, and that is no small matter mm -hmm. to make sure that um, we are present and I intend to travel around our country to remind people of what's at stake and that their voice will matter and will be expressed through their vote in many other ways. But we have to first get there. So I want to emphasize that point. Um, in terms of a second term, there's a lot of work to continue to, to do to build on our successes. We have, for example, capped the cost of insulin at $35 a month for our seniors. Uh, for years, our seniors have been talking about the fact that they had to make the awful decision about whether they could either fill their prescription or fill their refrigerator. But we with finally respect, kept excuse me, with respect yeah. to abortion in particular, I know this is a very big, important issue right now, and voters have been looking at it in previous elections as a time to turn out. It's when you're very passionate about in terms of freedom and choice. Okay, sure, no, yeah, sure, we can talk about choice. Yeah, with yeah. respect to that issue in yeah. particular, what could not have been done during the first term that you require a second to accomplish? So the first thing that has to happen on the issue of abortion and choice and, and freedom for reproductive care is that we need to, in the next 10 months, do everything we can to remind people that the court, the Supreme Court, took a constitutional right from the people of America, from the women of America, and the United States Congress has the power and ability to put that right back in place, to put back in place the protections of Roe v. Wade into law. Can Congress do it without having necessary votes on well, either side? Well, again, we are here in January, yeah. and I'm going to tell you, in these intervening months between now and the election, I am going to do exactly what I'm doing here in Wisconsin, 
which is traveling the country to remind people of not only what is at stake and the harm that is occurring every day, so many women silently suffering, but also remind them of the connection between their vote and an outcome that puts back in place the protections of Roe. So these months are going to matter. And as I have said on this issue, one does not have to abandon their faith or deeply held beliefs to agree. The government should not be telling women what to do with their bodies. And realistically, in the over a year that has passed since the Dobbs decision came down, women are silently suffering. Mm -hmm. I mentioned Megan, who was in the auditorium when I was speaking, who wanted a, to have a child, wanted to follow through with her pregnancy, but was diagnosed with a fetal mm. condition such that, that she had to have an abortion, but her doctor could not provide what he knew she needed for the best interest of her health care. She had to travel to Minnesota. He couldn't even secure, I think you said, two signatures from Correct. physicians to At try to get others to say he could provide it in her home state. Because under the law in Wisconsin at that time, he could not, as her physician, make the decision without having two other physicians sign on. In mm. states like Texas, they've passed laws that include providing for up to, to life in prison for health care providers, for doing their job of providing health care as they deem appropriate and necessary. There are states that have passed and, or proposed laws, both passed and proposed laws, that make no exception even for rape and incest which means after someone has survived a, a crime of a violation to their body, mm. a crime of, of violence to their body, these extremists are saying to that survivor, and you don't have the authority to make a decision about what happens to your body next. It's immoral. When you, when you were a prosecutor, this mm -hmm. was an extraordinary focus, crimes yes. against women, and children. violence against and children. Yeah. I know you've been very passionate about this for a very long time yes. in a variety of different fields. Yes. But I do wonder, when you talk about the states in particular, mm -hmm. You hold Trump responsible for the, the nomination of three Supreme Court justices who you believe intended at all times to then overturn this important precedent, as you say. 51 years later, here we are with it now being in past tense. If it's a state-related issue, is the election or candidacy and campaign of Trump as important? Well, let's first be clear that the previous president expressed his intentions quite clearly and, and fast forward to just recently, mm -hmm. says he's proud of what he did. And let's be clear. So by inference, he is proud that women have been deprived of fundamental freedoms to make decisions about their own body. By inference, proud that doctors are being penalized and criminalized for providing health care. Proud that women are silently suffering because they don't have access to the health care they need. So let's understand that the stakes are so very high. And mm -hmm. listen, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden has been very clear. When Congress puts the protections of Roe back into the law, he will sign it. Similarly, President Joe Biden has been very clear. If these extremists get achieve their other goal, which is to have a national ban, which means state by state by state, Joe Biden will veto that. The stakes are high. 
Speaking of the stakes being quite high, let's go to the border because yeah. this is something that is in your direct wheelhouse. It has been something that you have been looked to to try to accomplish what has been, frankly, a decades-long endeavor by successive presidential administrations. But there is anger on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, about an unsustainable border, what they're calling a crisis. Why can't this be accomplished during this administration? Well, so there is no question that our immigration system is broken. And so much so that we, as the first bill that we offered after our inauguration was to fix the immigration system, which included what we must do to create a pathway for citizenship mm -hmm. and to put the resources that are needed into the border. But sadly, people on the other side of the aisle have been playing politics with this issue. The solutions are at hand. And, you know, gone are the days, sadly, where a President Bush or John McCain understood that we should have a bipartisan approach to fixing this problem, which is a long-standing problem. But what are those solutions? The solutions include putting resources at the border to do what we can to process people effectively and putting in place laws that actually allow for a meaningful, meaningful pathway to citizenship. And yet there's progressives who are very angry about, progress, about dreamers, about a pathway to citizenship not being included in the latest negotiations on these issues. Why well, I, I, I won't speak to the current negotiations and the status of the current no negotiations, but I will tell you that dreamers under, sadly, the, some of the draconian approaches to them have been treated very badly mm -hmm. and that we have to understand who our dreamers are. First of all, in the height of the pandemic, it was so many dreamers who are frontline workers and working on saving lives. Um, dreamers who, many of them, before they could walk or talk, were brought into the country and, and have lived very productive lives, serving in our military, serving in Fortune 500 companies. And they should be honored for the, 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 the contribution they are making, and they should be protected. You've cared about this issue even before you were the vice president. Absolutely. It's, it's very dear to your heart. Yes. And yet you look at it, and if this is not something that can be accomplished now in this administration, I don't know how many bites of the apple you think you'll be able to get. Have you given that some thought? I will tell you that the negotiations that are happening right now, I hope, are going to be directed at solutions that are genuinely focused on fixing the problem, including all the equities that you mentioned. I do wonder about something that obviously you are really well known for. I mean, you are somebody who, aside from being the vice president, you have run a Department of Justice that's second only to the United States Department of Justice in size yeah. and, frankly, stature. Mm -hmm. um, we remember you very well from your Senate and all the work you're doing on the different committees mm -hmm. and making your voice heard. And yet, there is someone right now, if the polling is correct, has 91 counts, four different jurisdictions with different indictments and different case, cases against him, who could very well be the Republican nominee. And yet he is attacking you and President Biden for election interference. He believes what, what the Justice Department is doing is only attributed to you, but also is election interference. What is your reaction to those who believe his statements? 
Okay, well, let's start with the facts. You just outlined them, mm -hmm. so actually I don't need to repeat them um, in terms of what has have been the allegations about the former president. And I do believe that the American people care about rule of law and care about speaking truth and acknowledging truth. I do believe in my travels around our country that, for example, a statement that suggests that insurrectionists who attacked our capital and, and committed acts of violence should not be called patriots, as the former president has done. Um, should they be called candidates? Well, the people who attacked on January 6th should not be called patriots. The, what they did is they attacked our capital, they committed acts of violence, and they need to be taken into account and held accountable for those acts. So these are just facts, and um, we are going to see what happens in terms of any cases that are being litigated in a court of law. But what about the accusation that, you, that it is Biden's DOJ that is overseeing any of the charges against him? Well, listen, everyone who is paying close attention mm -hmm. understands that there is a clear and, and, and non-negotiable division in terms of the separation between our administration and what the Department of Justice does in terms of its investigations, in terms of its prosecutions. And that line has never been crossed. Did that also intend and include what's going on in Georgia? Obviously, you were a state prosecutor. This is the federal government we're talking about. But there are those who try to conflate what DA Fannie Willis is doing in Georgia with the acts of the Department of Justice. What's the question? The question is, do you believe that when Donald Trump is making these statements to suggest this is all attributed to the Biden administration or to the Department of Justice, what is your response to people who believe that, in fact, it's all orchestrated as one? Well, what he is saying is not factual, period. Period. And th that would not be new for him, would it? <laughs> I wonder when you look at the rule of law, as you've mentioned, and I do think the American public is very well in tune with discussions surrounding who is above the law and who is not. These phrases come out very easily now. It's almost like the Miranda warnings people are able to recite. When you hear that, juxtapose that to the issue of immunity, possibly, whether a president should have absolute immunity. Do you think people believe that it's appropriate for a president to have immunity? I think we're going to have to leave that to the lawyers who are handling the cases. Some would say it's up to the voters to look at issues of who can be on the ballots as well. In places like Colorado or Maine, are you comfortable leaving that up to the courts or to the voters? Those cases are all being litigated, and I'll watch as they go through their process. When you look ahead and you see what is coming down the road, particularly you know, the next time of the calendar date mm -hmm. is January 6th, Madam Vice President, the last time we saw an election year, presidential election year of a vice president overseeing certification of the election, we saw what transpired mm -hmm. with our eyes. There is concern that many actually believe that we do not have free and fair elections in this country. Do you have concerns about how to approach the certification process again on January 6th? I think everyone is right to be vigilant in demanding that we maintain our democracy and we uphold its pillars, which includes the integrity of a free and fair election system. And that means addressing, for example, the intimidation that has happened with poll workers. I was recently in Georgia speaking with poll workers who have been the subject of attack or are fearful about volunteering their time in our elections because they feel a sense of civic duty.
it's important for all of us to stand and say we support people who do that work and they should not be attacked. It is important that we all remember that a hallmark of a democracy is civic participation, which means let's all vote. I'm not telling you who to vote for, mm -hmm. but please, in the midst of all that you've got going on, take the time to fill out a ballot. If you can vote by mail, then send it in. Sometimes you might have to stand for quite some time mm -hmm. in line, but please do. In spite of, again, in states like Georgia, who pass laws that make it illegal to even give you food and water if you're standing in line. Um, but it matters. It matters. And elections matter. The voice of the American people matter. And one of the ways that, that we all express our voice is through our vote. Let me ask you one more question. It, I'm struck just in your presence. The, I was watching you on stage, watching the reactions from the crowd, mm -hmm. looking you in the eye with your passion that you were displaying and talking about so many issues. And yet, you hear candidates suggesting that a vote for President Biden, because of his age, is somehow a vote for you. And that is hurled as an insult. It's intended to demonstrate some negative viewpoint towards you. What is your reaction to this thought that with your background in particular, with your career, that there is some thought that you are incapable? Well, I, I think that um, most women who have risen in their profession, who are leaders in their profession, have had similar experiences. Mm. Um, I was the first woman to be elected district attorney. I was the first woman to be elected attorney general of the state of California. And I'm the first woman to be vice president. And I love my job. <laughs> Enough said. Thank you so much for the time. I thank really you. do appreciate, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I thank the vice president so much for taking the time out of a very busy schedule to meet with me. And there is a lot to dig into there, including the row reversal, the border, the vice president's response to the attack that a vote for Biden is actually a vote for her. My panel is raring to go and they are next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, lately we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. 
if you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you just saw my exclusive interview with Vice President Kamala Harris, and there is a lot to talk about out of it. Joining me now is CNN political commentators Kate Bedingfield and Jamal Simmons, also a contributor for CNN and presidential historian Leah wright Rigur, and Republican strategist Michael Singleton. I'm glad that you're all here with me today. Look, they were kicking off this huge event about freedom and choice and abortion. Obviously, it is something that is post-Dobbs' decision, but they are very clear this is a reason to get people to turn out. Are they right to put their eggs in this basket? Yes. How do we know that? Next cancer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, how do we know that? Because we saw this in 2022 when people were talking about the economy and this was going to be the question on the, on the ballot in 2022 during the midterms. And the administration talked about two things. We talked about abortion and we talked about democracy. And it turned out a lot of the voters who were interested in voting for Democrats were very animated when it came time to talk about abortion and democracy. And let me just say this. You talked about freedom and rights. That's language that Vice President Harris started using very early. I mean, from the week that we heard the decision, maybe even the leak of the decision, she started talking about the impact it was going to have on women and their freedom and talking about how her, uh, the young women that she knew in her life would have fewer rights than her mother had in her life and how that was wrong. And she used phrases like, how dare they? Mm-hmm. And I think today in uh, Wisconsin, she actually changed that because she talked about Donald Trump supporting the three uh, Supreme Court yep. justices that took the uh, decision away. And she said, how dare he? Because this is actually Donald Trump's decision that he created on purpose, and the women of America are the ones who are suffering mm-hmm. Well, and, and the threat persists, right? I mean, the other reason that makes sense for her to focus in on this, for the administration to focus in on this, the threat persists. We've seen from, you know, states since the fall of Roe, we've seen states across the country move at the state level to try to further restrict um, uh, women's access to reproductive rights. We've seen Republican-led legislatures move to try to close down uh, women's access to reproductive health care. And so you have the looming threat of Trump, who, you know, as Jamal rightly points out, uh, the vice president was very clear about the fact that it is there is a through line between Donald Trump being president of the United States and the fall of Roe. And then people are also feeling in their day to day lives in their states, they're feeling Republicans trying to take these rights from them. So this is a is an all encompassing issue that is, uh, you know, there's a direct shot at Donald Trump. um, But it's also it feels across the board like uh, rights are being taken away and sort of the walls are closing in on women. And so it's, it's smart for the administration to, to dial in on that. Yeah, I, I agree with that somewhat. I, I wonder, Laura, will we see this transference of energy enthusiasm transferred to President Biden? Now, I'll give my Democratic friends some credit here. In my state of Virginia, they saw successes. You saw successes in Ohio, Kansas, a plethora of other states where ballot initiatives clearly proved that most of the American people were on your side. But without those ballot measures, will that same intrigue be there? You asked the vice president, well, what is the argument for an additional four years as it pertains to this specific issue? She struggled to answer that question. And so I'm wondering if you're making your case to the American people with the litany of other things that American voters are concerned about, how does this register if in most of the states 
most of the states. Republicans are losing on this issue. The extremes only represent a very small minute minutia of states. And I'm not saying that it's right here, Laura, but my argument here is I'm not necessarily certain that the successes we've seen over the past two and a half years, 2022, Republicans barely won the House, but it was a victory. Does that transfer to November of this year? I'm not well, certain. Let me lay on yeah. this point um, because it was the, it say it's the 51st day since Roe v. Wade. There was a historical connection to why she was doing it on this occasion. It's more than a year since the Dobbs decision. Um, and it has gone back to the states as a matter of course after they decided from the Supreme Court. When you look at this contextually, the approach that she's making, what do you see? So I think this is her moment. This is absolutely the moment that she is stepping up to the plate. She is saying, finally, I have something that is not just about, I think, part of the larger Biden agenda or the Biden administration, but this is something that she can singularly come out in front of that people can rally behind and that can be intimately connected not only to the concept of democracy and choice and freedom, but also to this larger idea of Donald Trump being a threat to various forms of democracy, of, you know, and, and making an argument about this is not just about reproductive rights. This is about something much larger than that, right? Like, it's not just about what do we have for, what, do, what happened over the last four years or what happened because of Donald Trump in the courts, but also this is something that could affect mm. other things like birth control. And I have to say, you know, uh, maybe, maybe this is a, a little bit to push back at your Michael's point. Mm -hmm. Several states have already shown that they are willing to put reproductive rights on the ballot, that they want to protect it. 61% of Americans say that abortion should be legal in, mm -hmm. in all cases or most cases, right? That is something that is a rallying call. It is a deeply popular issue. It is one that people feel passionately about, and it is something that will get people to come out because the fear of losing even more rights will keep them from staying at home. So abortion has become a, kind of a proxy argument as well for freedom more broadly and what that looks like. Um, which is interesting to think about how that will play in the larger electorate, which she said this is this is a not a partisan issue when it comes to abortion. And you know what's no longer maybe a partisan issue? Uh, immigration. More and more, Jamal, I'm turning to you and I'm leaning in. I would want to talk to you about this next. Yes. Um, yes. So obviously we see a lot of issues right now at the border. She has said it's basically undeniable. She says there is no question that our immigration system is broken. That's a far cry from what was previously said. Um, but what about the dreamers? What about these concessions being made? How will this bode? You know, the Democrats have always been in favor of the Dreamers having more rights and making sure the Dreamers are being taken care of. It's the Republicans who are on the other side who have been trying to shut down these access, this access for immigrants to come into the United States. This is a very important issue for the country because, as we all know, I mean, some of us were immigrants not by choice, <laughs> but we were brought here um, by force. But for everybody else who came to the country except for the Native Americans, they came here as part of an immigrant class. It is amazing that the United States and the Trump movement, the MAGA movement is saying, no, thank you. We don't want to continue the process that's kept America being more competitive. And as I think about this, I think about the America that we're becoming. And the America we're becoming that has to go around the world and compete with countries around the world needs every single bit of talent that we can get in the country. And the Republicans are saying, no, thank you to that. I think that's a problem. Well, I want to push back for a second, though, because Republicans will say, and Democrats now, including in Chicago and places like New York as well, traditionally very blue areas, would say, no, no, it's not that we are anti-immigrants and having the fabric of our democracy enriched by those who contribute. It said this is an unsustainable pace and that the backlog is too much 
to be able to ensure that there is a fair process for those entering. When that is the name of the game, is it bipartisan? Is it partisan? I think for the Democrats who are facing this question, they want to make sure people have a place to live. They want to make sure people can work. They want to make sure this is an orderly process. I think the Republicans are playing fast and loose. They're not actually yeah, but, really but, being. But, very, but, they're not actually being very. Serious. I'm only turning to Jamar now. Like, I'm only turning this way because I have a new haircut. So the angle plays really well on this side. That's why I'm like, you, you, you see it, America, right? I'll go to you and look at the same side. Well, I would just say one thing. I thought Vice President Harris did in that interview which was really smart, is she went to, it's the Republicans who are standing in the way of getting to a deal. It's the Republicans who are standing in the way of more money to put more agents at the border, who are standing in the way of a deal that, frankly, the Biden administration uh, put forward back in October that would have cracked down on some of the uh, influx into the country. So I actually, I, I agree with Jamal's larger point about the fabric of the country, and I think Democrats have to continue to kind of thread that needle. But you know, when you look at Democratic mayors who are concerned about influx into their city, the administration should be should be aggressive about putting the ball in the Republicans' court and saying, we have put these tougher measures on the table. The Republicans are saying no. Why are they saying no? Because it's an election year. And they don't want to give the Biden team a bipartisan uh, win, frankly, on immigration. And, and Vice President Harris sort of alluded to that there. But I, I think they should go guns blazing at the idea that it's the Republicans who are standing in the way of putting some of these tough measures in place. Don't worry, we have a lot more to talk about. And I know, I'm, I mean, this, right. I, this, I know you're champing at the bit. I hear it, I feel it, I, I see it. We've got more time. That's the beauty of the 11 o'clock hour. Everything can breathe, and we will for a quick break and come back. The GOP primary is now maybe a two-person race. Well, it is between Trump and Nikki Haley, but does Haley stand a chance in New Hampshire? We've got Harry Enton to break it down at the magic wall and more about that issue that President or Vice President Harris mentioned next. And then there were two. Nikki Haley gets a one-on-one -on -one matchup with Donald Trump on the eve of the New Hampshire primary, although new polls do show Trump holding a wide lead over Haley. Let's go now to the one and only Harry Enton, who's at the Magic Wall. My friend, good to see you. We are here again at the eve of another actual moment in our election history. So as voters are getting ready to head to the polls in New Hampshire, Harry, who has the momentum? You know, Laura, I wish you were here with me, but we'll have to work through the magic of television. We will. Uh, look, this is the choice for nominee. Look, our CNN poll at the University of New Hampshire has Trump with an 11-point advantage. That is up from where it was uh, last month when it was, in fact, just a 7-point advantage for Donald Trump. Monmouth University, look at this, an 18-point edge. Donald Trump at 50 percent in the CNN poll, clearing 50 percent here. Haley way back. And you'll notice DeSantis, who, of course, has dropped out of the race. He's at 6 percent in that poll, 8 percent in the Monmouth poll, which might give you a reason why he left. He really had no shot in the state of New Hampshire. You do wonder who those could be added to, though. Which one, which candidate will go to Haley? Will it go to Trump? Who knows? We'll wait till see till tomorrow. But also, DeSantis is surprising many people when he decided to exit the race. By the way, less than 48 hours before the primary. And so you wonder, will his actual numbers, although they are lower compared to the others, will it go likely to Trump or Haley? Yeah, so we asked this in our poll, uh, DeSantis's supporters, their second choice for the GOP nominee, look at this. They don't go to Haley. 
They go to Donald Trump, 62, 30 percent for Haley. So DeSantis's exit doesn't, in fact, help Haley. It probably helps Donald Trump, which is not necessarily something he needs because he was already, already ahead. He's probably a little bit more ahead now that DeSantis has left the race. I feel like Haley has campaigned, it seems, more than Trump, even in that area. She's invested quite a bit in New Hampshire. So the question now is, how does the 2024 race look after New Hampshire? Yeah, so if these polls are right and Nikki Haley loses in New Hampshire, Donald Trump wins, he's already won in the state of Iowa, what do we see? Won the GOP nomination after losing Iowa and New Hampshire. Zero. It's never happened in the modern era, Laura. So the fact that Haley has lost Iowa, looks like she's going to lose New Hampshire, not good. Another bit of bad news for Nikki Haley. Look at this. Choice for GOP nominee nationally among likely GOP voters. Look at this. Donald Trump at 69 percent. Nikki Haley at 12 percent. That is tied for the largest advantage nationally at this point, basically ever for a GOP nominee. So the fact is Donald Trump looks like he's on his way to a victory in New Hampshire after Iowa. And nationally, he's well ahead at this point, Laura. Well, the wind at his back, it looks like right now. We'll see what ultimately happens. Harry Enton, thank you so much. Thank you. So is the Trump tide inevitable or despite the stats, could Nikki Haley still eke out a win? My panel's going to weigh in next. Plus, we're just minutes away from the first votes in New Hampshire. We will go live to Dixville Notch, where a tiny community kicks off a very big primary season. Now we're down to two people. And I think one person will be gone probably tomorrow. And the other one will be gone in November. Donald Trump making a pretty bold prediction hours away from the first in the nation primary. A final get out the vote push with the help of, wait for it, former opponents. Right now we need a commander in chief who will lead us to victory in this war. It's not just America, it's every foreign dictator, it's every terrorist group is going to be rethinking their plans when they know we've got a strong and experienced president. If you want four more years of Donald Trump, let me hear you scream! My panel is back with me now. He's not going to scream right now, but he does want to give his take. Sure, Michael, what do you make of that? I mean, this is the final push. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's over for Governor Haley. She does not have a mathematical path going forward. And the last thing she wants, if I were advising a former governor, is to go to your home state and lose by 40, 50 points. Now, for the viewers, they may be wondering, well, shouldn't Donald Trump be challenged considering everything he's going through? And I would say sensibly, I would, for the most part, agree with that. But the reality is that the delegate allocation process has drastically changed for Republicans. So last year, 2022, Donald Trump's team worked really, really hard to change multiple states. So California is now a winner-take-all, thanks in part to Kevin McCarthy. You have other states where they've changed the rules to winner-take-most. So, for example, if Donald Trump were to win 40, 50 percent, he would be allocated 40, 50 percent of the delegates. So Nikki Haley effectively would always be playing catch-up if she attempted to stay in. And I can't imagine making the argument to donors, wealthy and small, that there's a legitimate reason to stay in when they know you aren't a viable candidate. How do you see it? So I think there, uh, I'm of two minds here. The first is that there's always the Hail Mary. I know it's over. <laughs> I know it's over. But you never say it's over until it's actually over. Stranger things have, happening, ha have happened, including Donald Trump winning the presidency in 2016. So never say never. But of the second mind, I think right now what we're seeing is an audition for the vice presidency. 
This is like a giant version of The Apprentice. These are for Nikki Haley too. For, for Nikki Haley too. So it's for Tim Scott, right? It's for Ron DeSantis. It's certainly for Nikki Haley. And I think part of the appeal that she is trying to make, that certainly Donald Trump and his team would be wise to consider, is that she is the stability in the midst of chaos. She is the moderating force and the mitigating force in the midst of anarchy that she will actually bring some semblance of normalcy and also brings with her these kind of people who are on the fence, including uh, Republicans who are deeply uncomfortable with the xenophobia, the bigotry, the erraticness, the anti-democratic uh, uh, sentiment of Donald Trump. She would um, kind of, I think, uh, temper that for Republican voters and for a Republican base. But Even overall, with all the insults? I mean, I always wonder about that. You have this idea of essentially this tension, the insults. He's, she's been, you know, negative toward Tim, certainly vice versa. That doesn't matter? I don't necessarily know, think that that matters. Donald Trump has insulted everyone. There is no one who has been free from his wrath. And if anything, he knows her because she was in his cabinet. Mm -hmm. right? So I don't necessarily think that Donald Trump trashing you and calling you a bunch of, that's the way that he, that's the way that he operates. One thing he does respond to is strength, right? So standing up to him. So this is finally about the time that, Don, uh, that uh, Nikki Haley has actually said something to him, has shown a little backbone. Unlike many of the other candidates, with the exception of Chris Christie, um, She's actually sticking it to him. And I think part of that is not to hold him accountable, but instead to audition to be his second in Quickly, command. quickly, I would just say, we need to see what the moderate-leading Republicans do tomorrow. And let's compare those numbers to 2016. If there is an increase in turnout for Trump, that's worried Democrats. If there's a decrease, then Trump should be worried. Well, we will see what happens. Stand by, everyone. The next... next the first primary voting in New Hampshire happening in a matter of minutes. Yes, at the top of the hour, we'll go live to the small community of Dixville Notch, where the midnight tradition is about to get underway. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. We're just minutes away from the first New Hampshire primary votes being cast. The tiny community of Dixville Notch votes at midnight. And apparently they also play that. The accordion in a decades-old tradition, CNN's Eva McKend is there. Eva, tell us what you, we're about to see besides this fabulous rendition. Yes, indeed, Laura. You know, there's so much anticipation for midnight. It kind of feels like New Year's Eve. But what we're going to see is six residents from this community file in here. Four Republicans, two independents. They'll make their way down here. And then uh, they will vote behind these flags. And then they'll come out and they will cast their ballots uh, in the ballot box. And actually, some of the town officials that are going to be up here at this table, they also actually vote. So they will go in and then come back out. And then when it's all said and done, the votes will be written on this white board. And then we will know how the first community in New Hampshire 
feels about these candidates. It's a remarkable tradition that has lasted over 60 years. The resort owner of the Balsams, where I am now, he started this because he wanted the community here in Dixville Notch to be able to participate in this process and not have to travel an hour away in the winter in the snow and so that they could all be a part of this tradition. One of the voters telling me here that this is really democracy in action. Laura? Wow, this is really going to be very interesting. I'm so glad we're being able to watch democracy in action yet again. Eva, please stick around. We're going to watch the, the voting and the counting in Dixville Notch play out live in just a moment. So much more ahead. Breaking news, we are moments away from a primary, a primary day in New Hampshire. Tonight on our special bonus hour of Laura Coates Live. This is Democracy in Action. Six, count them, six voters about to cast their ballots in a tiny New England town, kicking off the first in the nation New Hampshire Republican primary. CNN's Eva McKend is live in Dixville Notch to tell us what to expect there. Eva, Walk me through the process there. How is all of this going to go down? Well, Laura, don't blink because you might miss it. It's all going to be over within just a few minutes here. So much anticipation for midnight. So six residents in this community, four Republicans, two independents, they're going to make their way down here. And some of the town officials sitting, they also get up and vote, and then they sit back down. That's how small this community is. They're going to vote behind these American uh, flags here. Then they're going to come out, and then they're going to cast their ballots in that box here. And then when it's all said and done, uh, the votes will be written up. Uh, on that whiteboard. And we are going to know how the first community uh, in New Hampshire is feeling about these candidates here in the first in the nation primary. So it's all getting started right now, uh, Laura, the first voter here about to cast his ballot. This is really an exciting uh, process. This all started because the uh, the former uh, owner of the, of the Balsams Resort here, he wanted a way for the people in this community to be able to participate participate uh, in this uh, process without having to drive nearly an hour away in the snow, in the winter. And so that is why he made this uh, possible and he pushed for Dixville Notch to be incorporated so that people in this community uh, could vote. I have to say, I love the fact that they are able to have the same process that you would see in a larger jurisdiction, people going behind a curtain, this time the flag, to cast their vote. There are only six people there. You're watching them actually put the, the actual ballot into the box, filling it with a handshake and moving on. And of course, that means five other people are now going to have a chance to cast their ballot. And we're seeing democracy at a smaller level, but certainly in action, there are six total what do you know, Eva, about their political backgrounds in general? So four Republicans, two independents, one of the voters that I spoke with uh, earlier this evening, he told me that he's a lifelong Republican, but he did vote for President Biden in 2020. And that is reflective of some of what you hear from these New Hampshire voters, many of the moderate independents, especially the ones that have been turning out to Nikki uh, Haley rallies. I don't know how instructive he is of, of the rest of the five, but at least uh, one person sort of leaning in the moderate lane here, Laura. Eva, stand by. We're going to keep watching this voting. Thank you so much. I'm going to get right to our political commentators, Kate Bedingfield and Jamal Simmons, CNN contributor Leah Wright-Rigur, and 
Former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh is also, are also here with me right now. Look, we're watching this very small town, Dixville Notch, New Hampshire. Obviously, there are only six people. Talk about a microcosm of the greater democracy. But if you were to scale this experience, I think a huge takeaway is the benefit of watching democracy in action, Joe, because we're talking about months and months and years at this point of people challenging this system, doubting the system, wanting to have transparency. You've got sight in line sight in there right now. It's cool. Uh, these are the first six people. You say of- it's cool? I had that whole eloquent, <laughs> I had this whole eloquent thing and you're like, right on. <laughs> you floored me because it was beautiful. <laughs> but these, these are the first six of what will be millions of Americans who will vote in primaries. And we get to watch the first six vote. I don't know how old they all are, but I, so I'm, I'm hoping that this jurisdiction can stay alive for a while. I don't well, know. I Laura, you- the thing about this this election uh, in Dixville Notch is, and I've been there, I've been there, and, and we are that far north in New Hampshire. It's a long way away from Manchester, which is mm-hmm. kind of the population center. In the old days, all the candidates used to go up there. They they go talk to these voters, get them to get to know them a little bit. And the trick was you would win Dixville Notch. That would get you a spot on the front page of the newspaper the next morning. So all the candidates who wanted a little extra juice going into election day, they got it by winning Dixville Notch. Um, it's not quite uh, the big to do as it was uh, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, but it is still something that's a remarkable thing. Another thing so social media has killed. Absolutely. Add Dixville Notch to the list. It's a, it is like, I, I read, though, that they have been able to predict every Republican primary race since from 1968 to 2012. Dixville now? Dix, that's what I'm telling you. It's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> whole thing. They, look, at, look at all the people they predict. Now, of course, it does stop with people <laughs> with, who are more recent, yeah, yeah, as you yeah. can imagine. But it is quite telling. But let's just talk broadly. Because nobody yeah. predicted Donald Trump. That's why. Well, <laughs> and Dixville Notch was Dixville not Notch. different than anybody else in the country. Dixville nobody Notch, Punxsutawney Phil, no one saw it coming. <laughs> Let me ask you, though, um, when you're talking about New Hampshire more broadly, mm-hmm. I mean, this is now between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. That's what Haley has wanted. Trump doesn't seem to be phased by it at all. But you look ahead. This is the first of all the voters in New Hampshire going to cast their ballots. When you look at what might happen... What do you see? So I want to push back a little bit because I think Trump is phased. Because originally he's like, I'm not putting money into the state. Couldn't care less. And all of a sudden in the last minute, he's been pumping up the attack ads. He's been pouring money into the state. He's there in New Hampshire right now, campaigning, pounding the ground, meeting with these people, right? You know, social media hasn't killed that much. And I think part of it is not just just being concerned about Nikki Haley. I think he knows he has this wrapped up, but it's also about how he wins. Is it going to be a large sweeping win? Is it going to be a small win? Is it going to say something about the state of the Republican Party? And one thing that is fascinating about New Hampshire is that it is a different kind of Republican Party. So we're not talking about then say voters, Iowa, then say Iowa, right, or even South Carolina, or even California. These various other things. I think the the voters in New Hampshire in the in the Republican primary really pride themselves on being independent. Many of them are socially liberal, um, and they fall into these Republican camps in really different ways. So for Donald Trump, this may look like it's wrapped up, 
but there's still work to be done. And I think one of the things that we can pull, even though, you know, as, as an academic, we would say this is statistically irrelevant. <laughs> you know, this is all coincident. This is the same chance as, uh, you know, as Groundhog's Day. Um, there is something that we can pull beyond the kind of exercise of democracy, which is that sometimes the voters um, showcase startling surprises. Uh, we were talking during the break about how, you know, one year Michael Bloomberg uh, won this contest. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders coming out first and surprising everyone. And so sometimes I think it can be a bellwether of these kind of very different uh, or a microcosm of these very different emotions and ideas and values that voters are feeling on the ground. But, uh, yeah. but I do think for Nikki Haley, she's going to have a really practical problem coming through uh, tomorrow unless she really overperforms in a way that blows everybody yeah. away, which is she's not going to be able to keep raising money. I mean, yeah. this is kind of her last stand to say to people, yeah. I'm a viable Trump alternative. And if she doesn't absolutely blow the doors off it tomorrow night, it's going to be hard for her to, to keep raising money. Wait, the, well... The door is coming off the ballot box as we uh -huh. speak. The lock has been taken off. They're getting ready to count. Let's go back to Eva McKen. What are you seeing? Yeah, so everyone is. Eva, what do you see, Eva? There you go. Starting the tally here. Yep, they're now starting the tally here, and this should be over within a matter of uh, minutes, Laura. You know, from uh, 1968 to 2012, this community has picked primary winners. And so everyone sort of looks to see what Dixville Notch is going to do. Uh, but earlier tonight, what one of the residents here told me is don't spend so much time focusing on the fact that they pick primary winners and more the fact that they truck trek through the wilderness to be able to vote. And they want to send a message to other New Hampshire residents uh, to get out and vote too, and send that message to voters across the country as well. Are you able to hear them as they're tallying so right now? Be quiet so I can hear the tally. Yeah, let's hear it for a second. Let's listen in. Vote for Nikki Haley. Another vote for Nikki Haley. So that's two votes for Nikki Haley. Two votes for Nikki Haley. Another Republican ballot. Yes, five to six did. Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley has finished so far. Three, three votes for Nikki Haley. Half of the votes so far have gone to Nikki Haley. Another vote for Nikki Haley. Five of six for Nikki Haley. Waiting for the results. And a vote for Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley has captured all six votes here in Dixville Notch. I know from the residents here that she did reach out to the residents in this community and invited to meet with them privately. That seems to have paid off as every resident in this community has supported Nikki Haley. So those are the results from the first community in the first in the nation primary, Laura. So important to think about this. I want to bring back up that graphic. We had that kind of yearbook photo for a second of all the people who had that predictive value. We were talking about the years that Dixville Notch predicted the Republican nominee. I'm seeing some presidents in there, obviously, some who did not ultimately win the presidency as well. Um, I, I wonder, Joe, when you look at this, and you know, of course, it's just six people. Just six. But Laura. though she be but small, she is mighty. I'm just saying. <laughs> what do you think? 
I want to believe. Lori, <laughs> you know how you know what I think about Trump. I, I just, I, I think it's too late. Um, it, it, New Hampshire's her best chance to win a state. I think Trump's going to win by more than people think. I think then she's going to get out within a week or two. It's just too late. I'd guys- love a surprise. Well, what I would say is I think this is a bigger uh, impact on what's going to happen in the fall, right? Mm. This is a vote of no confidence in Donald Trump. If there's anything... These are moderates. These, yeah. these are moderates. Or in New Hampshire, I'd probably say they're more libertarians yeah. than they are liberals, right? People who say, you do what you do and let the government stay out of your business. And so I think that is the problem for Donald Trump. He lost the state last time. He's probably going to Absolutely. I mean, I this this kind of overperformance is the kind of overperformance she's going to need tomorrow to continue to have a viable uh, campaign. Unfortunately, for those of us who love democracy and don't want to see Donald Trump uh, be the Republican nominee. But um, uh, but yes, I mean, I agree with Jamal. This is, you know, as we start to look toward the kind of what seems like inevitability of, of him uh, becoming the nominee. He has he has significant general election vulnerabilities. He is not appealing to those moderate swing suburban voters who are going to be decisive in the key states that are ultimately going to decide the election. So that's going to be a problem for him. We're looking at the actual official votes now. Obviously, we've said there's six. It's very rare that you're going to have a candidate get 100 percent of anything. But while we're talking about this, I mean, I often wonder about the path forward. I mean, it's one thing. Obviously, we've got 50 states. And a piecemeal approach, you know, sort of the eating an elephant one bite at a time might be conceptually okay. But when it comes to getting those delegates, you actually have to have a path forward beyond not just this step, but two or three steps down the road. When you look at the path, does she, if this were to, you know, portend the future, is there a path following New Hampshire? I mean, Kate made the most interesting point of any political campaign. You don't stop campaigning when you lose. You stop campaigning when you run out of money. (laughs) <laughs> right. And so she's going to have to raise money to keep this thing going. And so the question is, does she do well enough that her donors decide to put a little bit more money in? But what's happening in the Republican Party that we're seeing is that everybody is scared of Donald Trump. And I think a lot of people who may be interested in finding somebody else to take him on have decided this thing is already cooked. Let me just get out and get on board so I don't get punished by the guy who is the authoritarian trying to take over the country. So I agree with what everyone said, but, you know, I have to put in, again, the Hail Mary perspective. And I think one of the things that we've seen over the past couple of weeks is that uh, the number of Republican donors, Republican moderate donors and kind of independent donors who've been willing to contribute has actually gone up for Nikki Haley. Um, And that's because they see some sliver of possibility or pathway for her. Now, do I think it's there? No. But a lot of that rests on Trump being disqualified from certain states or Trump's legal troubles catching up with him. And so I think, again, this is part of this, you know, completely inconceivable, probably most likely won't happen. But it is, I think, valuable, or at least the donors are putting some value in this. But ultimately, it does come down to when does the money run out, right? What I like about this in particular, I have to tell you, um, coming from some place that as a Minnesotan, not coming from, you know, the New Yorks, the Washington, D.C., the Chicago's, the L.A.'s, where it seems that everyone wants to focus on the biggest cities in the country, they say. And then you've got smaller jurisdictions. Obviously, Minnesota is not as small as, say, a Dixville notch. But the emphasis being that, that candidates have to go around the entirety of the state makes me wonder how that is playing with those candidates who say, well, you know what, I'm far enough ahead, or maybe 
I'm the incumbent president and I, I don't have the same luxury maybe of time to do so. Does this tell you that there should still be the emphasis on what is, quote unquote, the flyover country? Well, this is what's charming about New Hampshire, right? Anybody's ever campaigned there has probably enjoyed it a lot because it is charming to be able to go there and do it. The problem is the predictive nature of New Hampshire isn't what it used to be. And so particularly in the Democratic Party, where we're a much more diverse party, people of color, African-Americans, Latinos have much more of a say. New Hampshire ain't really it, right? Like those people aren't really as, as much in a state like New Hampshire. So the Democrats have decided, let's go to states where we have more representative uh, voters who really represent our coalition, and that's why you're going to see a real uh, contest for the president, the first one in South Carolina. Well, we'll see what happens there. Everyone stick around, don't worry. And where's that accordion player? Because I liked it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I liked it. You all saw Nikki Haley sweep all six votes in Dixville Notch. We'll talk to the town manager right after this. I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. Ron DeSantis is bowing out of the presidential campaign days after vowing to remain in the 2024 race. You helped us get a ticket punched out of the Hawkeye state we have a lot of work to do, but I can tell you this, as the next president of the United States, I am going to get the job done for this country. So what exactly happened? My panel is back with me. I mean, first of all, you look at maybe a year or a year and a half ago at all of the potential trajectory of this man's career, potentially as being the president of the United States. He was an early front runner. Then it seemed to go downhill from there. What happened? Well, he had two big problems, both of which I think are illustrated by that video dropping out, right? One is he never made a compelling case uh, differentiating himself from Donald Trump. He basically spent the bulk of the campaign saying, Donald Trump's kind of great, but I'm also pretty good. You should maybe vote for me. He never, he never said, he never made a, a clear case. He never took on Trump in a meaningful way. Uh, and then two, he was lacking in uh, in charm and an ability to connect. I mean, you know, typically when a candidate drops out of the race, it's one of the actually one of the most sort of human and relatable moments. And it's it's like perfectly emblematic of the problems that Ron DeSantis had connecting with voters, that it was this incre that he dropped out with this incredibly sanitized, impersonal uh, uh, video. Unlikable. Video, unlikable like video where he basically said, yeah. Donald Trump's great, and you should go vote for him. What happened was DeSantis happened. <laughs> Partly, and, and those of us who know him, he's just, he's an unlikable guy who doesn't like to be around people. But the other thing that happened, Laura, is my former party became a cult. Trump is the cult leader. I don't think anybody could have beaten him for this nomination. And, and certainly, uh, Kate's right, DeSantis made no case to try to beat him. But... He has been elected twice as a governor of Florida. He also has been elected as a member of Congress. So clearly there is some pull, there is some draw, and he has proven that maybe not at the presidential level. So is there something about, obviously, that next step out of the statewide office that makes it such that what qualities he projected are just not viable to the general? Or is it really Trump? We know, one thing it also is is hubris. 
right? I mean, mm. it just reminds me of Jeb Bush, who also was a Florida governor, <clears throat> right, who ran for president and it didn't work out and everybody in the Republican Party was supposed to be there for Jeb Bush and he was the candidate in waiting. Um, and hubris never really works. You really do have to campaign like your life depends on it. You have to get out there and push and push and push. And I think um, one of the things we saw from DeSantis, he, he talked about it himself, he narrow-casted very early. He tried to prove that he was the most pure Republican MAGA person other than Donald Trump that was out there. And really, he never t- had a message that spoke to the rest of the country about what he wanted to do, where he wanted to take us. And I think he paid the price for that. You know, you wonder about, it's like the Coke, Diet Coke, like everyone kept talking about why choose one if you have the other. Well, and why choose DeSantis when you have Donald Trump right there? And I think that's even true uh, prior to Donald Trump being the front runner, right? Because everyone forgets, like two years ago, Donald Trump was not in this race. We were talking about where is he going to, is he going to fade off into oblivion? Is he going to start his own network or something like that? And he, there's this resurgence that happens really over the course of the last 18 months, uh, 12 months, that I think really centers around uh, the indictments, the various indictments that he's facing. But even before that, Ron DeSantis is a cheap imitation of Donald Trump. And so I think the Republican base that wants Donald Trump, or at least wants Trumpism, they may actually want, they may not want Donald Trump, but they may want Trumpism. Um, They don't want an imitation. They don't want someone coming in in costume and pretending to be Donald Trump, because the only person that can be Donald Trump is Donald Trump. It looks very, very poor when someone steps in and tries to act as if that's their demeanor. The other thing I think that is uh, deeply problematic is that as DeSantis started slipping in the polls, right, he has all this money, he starts mismanaging it. And there's a real like implosion within the campaign about what to do with that money, how to spend it, where to go, what to do. And the fact that there isn't really a vision tells us a lot more, I think, about um, his fitness, right, irrespective of the policy, about his fitness to actually run a successful presidential campaign. He wasn't ready in 2024, and he's certainly not going to be ready in 2028. Then there was the most malpractice moment of the campaign. I said it before, I'll say it again. I do not understand why they spent any time whatsoever debating Gavin Newsom. (laughs) (laughs) Gavin Newsom was not running for president. It would be like debating me, right? (laughs) Just because I'm on television talking about uh, DeSantis. It just did not make any sense to me. Maybe a preview to maybe 2028. (laughs) We'll see what happens. Everyone stick around. Next, the town manager for Dixville Notch joins me to discuss Nikki Haley's six-vote, 100% sweep there. Well, voters in Dixville Notch have cast the first votes in the New Hampshire primary. All six voters have chosen Nikki Haley. Joining me now, the Dixville Notch town manager, Tom Tillotson. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. We were watching it all unfold, and we saw the results. A six-vote, 100% sweep tonight. Why is it that Nikki Haley resonated so much in your community? Tom, are you able to hear me? She's young. Okay. Yes, I am. Uh, can you hear me? Okay, yeah. I can hear um, you. Thank you. I, I, I think the most important, yeah, I think the most important point of the result were the two independents that voted for her. And you know, New Hampshire is in a situation where, um, like a lot of the country, doesn't want to see a Biden-Trump rematch. 
where, um, but the independents who represent 40% of the vote in Dixville, in, uh, not in Dixville, but in, uh, in the state overall, have been being told for months that, you know, they're, they don't count because it's going to be Trump and it's going to be Biden. And uh, I think the most important takeaway from uh, our lean towards Nikki Haley is that that doesn't necessarily have to be the way it ends. And if the independent voters get out tomorrow, today, right later on, when, we'll be getting to bed about the time they're getting up. But when uh, when they go when they get up and if they have any doubt about whether to go vote, please, you know, consider what we we got up at midnight to vote and and. and did our part. Uh, it's now time for the, all the other 40% of the, in, you know, the voters in New Hampshire to get up and do their part. Um, a very, and, yeah. You know, in this divided, yeah, I'm just going to say, in this divided country, the, the people in the middle have, for, for their, their voices need to be heard. And in our system, that's the ballot box. So, that's the most important, I think, takeaway from what happened here in Little Dixville Notch tonight. Well, Little Dixville Notch making a big impression. Tom Tillotson, thank you so much. It's a really important point, particularly about independent voters and not taking anyone's vote for granted. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a good evening. You too, or a good morning. Next, more from my exclusive interview with Vice President Kamala Harris. Her candid reaction to the Republican narrative that a vote for President Biden is actually a vote for her. Welcome back. I sat down with Vice President Kamala Harris earlier today to talk about a host of issues, including the Republican narrative that a vote for President Biden is actually a vote for her. Here's what she told me. You hear candidates suggesting that a vote for President Biden, because of his age, is somehow a vote for you, and that is hurled as an insult. It's intended to demonstrate some negative viewpoint towards you. What is your reaction to this thought that with your background in particular, with your career, that there is some thought that you are incapable well, I, I think that um, most women who have risen in their profession, who are leaders in their profession, have had similar experiences. Mm. Um, I was the first woman to be elected district attorney. I was the first woman to be elected attorney general of the state of California. And I'm the first woman to be vice president. And I love my job. Back with my panel now, what is your reaction to um, the intimation that this is really <clears throat> focusing on a woman in power? Well, she, look, she's right. She's right. I mean, can you remember another campaign in modern history where the attack was so directly focused on the vice president and where the vice president was singled out in this way? She's right. Of course, there's an element of sexism to this. Now, I would argue that doesn't mean that the response is just, well, it's sexism and that's it. And I actually thought the way that she handle that was great, which is to say, listen, women, uh, you know, a lot of women have experienced this, but you know what? I love my job. And then she can go to and hear all the things I've done and hear all the ways that I'm getting things done for you. So I, you know, I think that the way she kind of touched on it and acknowledged it and talked about it in a way that resonates with 
with women across the country, who, by the way, are a very important voting block that uh, the Biden-Harris ticket needs to win the election. Uh, I thought that was smart. I thought by sort of taking it from just her and making it about the collective experience of women who've experienced sexism, um, I thought that was smart. But I think the answer can't stop there. And I think she needs to, as she did there, kind of go to, but I love the substance of my job. And here's what I'm doing every day to get things done. I mean, let me tell you, I, obviously I was the vice president's communications director. I spent every day with her for a year. <clears throat> For the most part, uh, everywhere that we went and I was with her, I saw women from young girls who looked at her like she was Wonder Woman, who wanted to shake her hand, to older women who would grab her hand and say, I never thought I would see the day. Even some who were Republicans, I didn't vote for you, but I never thought that I would see the day that a woman would be in the White House. And I think um, there is something about this attack on her that is not going to ring well, ring true and ring well for a lot of women in the country who, even if they may not like the policies of the Biden-Harris administration, they do feel a certain amount of pride that we were able to go across, get through this glass barrier, and she was able to do it. Is there fair criticism towards her? So I do think it is fair to point out that uh, uh, Vice President um, Harris has low favorability ratings. But I think it's actually, it's not a smart strategy. One, because people do not elect presidents based on who the vice president is. They never have. You know, we always have these debates around, you know, who the vice president is going to be, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet, that's not, when people go into the voting booth, they actually vote for the president of the United States. That's what makes the determination. But here the they're other, arguing, and I don't want to cut you off, but yeah. here they're arguing that because of Biden's age, it becomes relevant for a brand new reason. And that's why it's a new strategy. Right. So it's a relatively new strategy, and yet it's built on an old one that doesn't necessarily work. The other thing that I think... Um, is to point out is how it may actually backfire, which is one, we do know that women will rally around this, particularly in feeling like uh, women in professional settings who have often heard about unlikability or likability and those kinds of uh, things uh, of that nature. But it's also true that one of the things that has been happening is that black women have been rallying around uh, Kamala Harris in a way that I think is really important for mobilizing and organizing Democratic voters who have been less enthusiastic this cycle. So the last thing that you want to do if you're a Republican is excite the other side around something that should be a non-issue. So why stick it to the first black and Asian uh, woman vice president um, and use that as a strategy when effectively it may in incur a rather large backlash? Why, Joe? Why? Well, it, well, because the other point is, and it is an attack on her, but it, you mentioned it, Laura, it's an attack on Biden. It's an attack on his age. And I think Team Biden and Harris could do could go a long way if if the president embraced the age issue. And I mean, it's the elephant in the room. I wish he'd embrace it more. I wish he'd have fun with it. I wish he'd acknowledge it because it's also an attack on him. He ought to defuse it. I think he makes more jokes about this than we are giving him credit for at the table. I mean, he seems to be kind of leaning into... He should. He, I, I, he should. I would agree. He has started to lean into it more uh, and has started to kind of joke about it and sort of make self-deprecating yeah. jokes that sort of, to your point, Joe, that kind of help take it off the table, sort of puts people at ease. Um, but, but he, does has, it do he that? has started to do that more. I mean, does it have that effect? I mean, it's one thing to talk yeah. about it, but if you are seeing an aging... I mean, this is a congressional issue more broadly. This is a government issue more broadly. I think it's not, for many voters, a Biden-specific issue. People are wondering what and who is the future of their parties. Sure. And so I do wonder, by mentioning it, does it diffuse it or does it just yeah, I mean, well, He's going to be the nominee, and he's got a hell of a record 
But everybody's wondering about this. I wish you would come out, Laura, and say, I wish say they, what? I'm well, old. Here's what. No, yes. no, I wish they'd let them out more, and I wish you'd say, I'm going to mess up some names. I'm going to make some mistakes. I take two naps a day, but damn it, look what we've done. <laughs> Have fun with it. Everybody's got a parent or a grandparent like this, but he's doing a lot. But here's I, the other the other thing he's doing, and the other way that they take this on is by talking about the wisdom that comes with experience. Yeah. Yes. Right? I mean, it's that's the other way to attack this. There's the self-deprecating piece, which I agree is is um, it puts people at ease and it's it's helpful but you know the other substantive way to take this on is to say you know my yes have I been at this a long time I have and because of that I know how to do it I know how to reach across the aisle I've been able to get bipartisan look work what done. We've done look yeah. what we've done so that's the other way to wrap uh, around it and that's and you you hear the president you hear the president do that and I think too it's it, it's also true that the American public says we want young presidents we want young presidents and then when they are given the option of having young presidents they very rarely choose the young president there are a few notable exceptions Bill Clinton Barack Obama John F Kennedy Jr but by and large when given a choice between somebody who's really young and somebody who is really old, they choose the one who is experienced because Americans say time after time, they want experience, they want wisdom, and they value that. As opposed to, for example, when Al Gore first entered into the Democratic primary, they said, oh, we're gonna have a boy president? He's too young. He, he was knocked out and it was 100% because of his age. You know, I'll also say this, Laura. The vice president has been a very key um, ally, partner to the president. Um, she's in meetings in the Oval Office. She's in uh, meetings in the Situation Room. She's been traveling back and forth to Europe around questions around Ukraine. Um, she does meetings with all these foreign dignitaries around, from around the world. So um, what we've seen over the course of her time in the White House is somebody who has really gotten more comfortable in the role. She's really started to uh, have a substantive uh, impact. I think there are stories about the president really feeling like he can turn to her to ask certain questions and, and know where she's headed. So I think this attack on her is a dated attack. It's an attack that's probably built on something from like a year and a half ago or a couple of years ago where people had a sense, a sense about her. Over the last year and a half, I think you've seen this vice president really come into her own as a leader inside the White House. Well, we will see. Wasn't it Reagan who made that comment that he was not going to take a shot at his opponent's age? And of course, <laughs> he was the older of the two. <laughs> That's what acting in Hollywood can get you people. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. And hey, I know you're new to the family, Leah. Thank you for being here. Important to hear your viewpoints. Thank you. The district attorney in the Georgia election subversion case against Trump facing some big conflict of interest questions over an alleged affair with the lead prosecutor that she hired. Now a judge is unsealing that prosecutor's divorce records. Tonight, a judge pausing Fulton County DA Fannie Willis's deposition in divorce proceedings involving her lead prosecutor in the Georgia election subversion case. But she's not in the clear yet, as she herself faces allegations that they had an affair. The judge saying that he wants to hear Nathan Wade's testimony first, and also announcing that documents related to Wade's divorce will be unsealed. Joining me now, CNN legal analyst Norm Eisen. Norm, I'm so glad you're here because when you look at this issue, it's not a matter of whether there has been criminal conduct alleged. This is in the umbrella of ethical violations. More broadly, you are the White House ethics czar. What do you see? Well, I see a situation where some unwise decisions appear to have been made, but 
When you look at Georgia law over the weekend, I read all the disqualifications and the fact pattern here, including a consensual relationship between two prosecutors, has never been a basis for disqualification under Georgia law. I know of no case nationally where that has ever led to disqualification because the key test for disqualification is what prejudice is there to a defendant? Now, when you have a prosecutor who has a relationship with a witness, that's different. It goes the evidence in the case. So I don't think they're going to be disqualified. That doesn't mean it's smart. But what about why is the money aspect a part of this conversation? How funds were used and paid for? Does that signal anything to you? Mr. Wade has been paid the standard rate for special uh, counsels, $250 an hour. There's another one of the special counsels on the case who's made that rate. No cause for suspicion there. He's done a great job up until now, mm. Laura. He's defeated some of the most prestigious lawyers in the country, him and the team he's led under the DA's supervision. Uh, he's secured four guilty pleas from hardcore former Trump followers. Uh, he's, he's been worth every penny. There's no issue there of quality. Nevertheless, this has become a gigantic distraction from what is one of the most important criminal prosecutions, alleged wrongdoing in American history. And for that reason, I think Mr. Wade should follow that record of success by saying, hey, I've become a distraction. Time to step away. So not an ethical violation, not one based on criminal conduct or, as you're saying, that goes to the heart of the facts in this case. But under the guise of, look, if it were a judge, you'd ask him to recuse for a hint of impropriety. This is enough for you there. Was that is that it? Uh, well, when you, you have to distinguish between Mr. Wade and Ms. Willis, right. she was democratically elected. Again, I think they've done a very competent job on this case, beyond competent. The evidence is powerful. There's no question about the basis for filing charges here. Uh, but we live in the real world, not in the ivory tower of these abstract legal principles where there will be no disqualification according to the law. It has become a massive distraction, the right thing to do for the case, for the DA, and really for the public interest and the interests of, of justice is for Mr. Wade to follow his other successes by saying, the time has come. You got to know when to hold him, when to fold him. It's time for him to fold him. And I think with Judge hearing, the judge hearing this case, having an evidentiary hearing, get all the evidence out. Today, the divorce records were unsealed. Guess what? There was nothing new in those divorce records going to the issues. I think when we have that ventilation, if Mr. Wade is willing to step away, that will help us get past this, get back to the evidence that is so strong. Who knew that at almost 1 a.m. I would hear Kenny Rogers from Norm Eisen. Thank you so much. No one to hold him, no one to fold him. Well, look, we know when to fold them, but before we leave tonight, here's a classic moment from The West Wing, their fictional version of Dixville Notch. I think it's democracy at its purest. They all gather at once. At a gas station. It's not a gas station. It's nice. There's a registrar of voters. The names are called in alphabetical order. They put a folded piece of paper into a box. See? <laughs> 
This is the difference between you and me. You're a sap? Those 42 people are teaching us something about ourselves, that freedom is the glory of God, that democracy is its birthright, and that our vote matters. You getting the pizza? Or? Yeah, I should call him. Enjoy your pizza, everyone. Hey, listen, I'll be live on Instagram at the Laura Coates for my after show in just a couple of minutes. Be sure to tune in. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash country. Max subscription required.